This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Well, my name is Graham Young. So hi, Graham, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Uh, now, in this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Where are you on that spectrum? Oh, dear. Well, as you know, when you when you do science, you never stop learning. And uh, and hopefully you are always teaching to some extent. And uh, uh, I guess, well, I'm a museum curator, which means that you're bouncing back and forth between many different worlds. I think an, on an ideal day, I'm probably a researcher, but we don't get very many ideal days. <laughs> now, you are a paleontologist. Um, what does paleontology mean to you? Uh, Paleontology means to me under, trying to develop an understanding of the evidence for ancient life forms and also what that evidence can tell us about how those uh, organisms related to their world. So it's really studying, studying all aspects of the fossils themselves, but also evidence of their behavior, evidence of what was, uh, was happening to the, uh, to the organisms and also uh, to the environments they lived in and their relationship to other aspects of the environment, such as what we can learn from the sediments that the fossils are, are enclosed in. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to keep it broad. I like, I like looking at fossils, but I'm always thinking I need to understand those fossils in the context of their world. That's a very holistic approach to um, paleontology. That's excellent. <laughs> Now, paleontology, uh, how did you get into this field? Did you always want to be a paleontologist? Um, yeah, I, like some others, yes. I think I caught the paleontology bug at an early age. Uh, I grew up in a household where I had one parent who was a biologist and the other was a historian. So in a sense, I, I ended up in a field that landed between my parents. I grew up in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which was a place that had very few fossils and no uh, no local natural history museum. But then I think I really got onto fossils because I was lucky. We had a year living in London in the 1960s and made regular trips to the Natural History Museum. And also my grandmother lived out uh, by the coast in England and it was a coastline that had a lot of ammonoids along it. So we went fossil hunting and and collected ammonoids there along that coast, so so fossil shells, and I think I think I found it very exciting that you could find this evidence. It, not only that there was the evidence of ancient life, which you could see with all the dinosaurs and ichthyosaurs at the Natural History Museum, but that a a seven year old could actually go out and and find these exciting fossils, and uh, and then you know I got I got back home and I thought about it more. I got. I read a lot of books about fossils. I was the kind of kid who read the encyclopedia cover to cover uh, over and over again. So I think <laughs> I think I got a lot of natural history background that way. So when I got to university, I I ended up 
splitting my studies between biology and geology. And, uh, and so it was kind of a, a natural evolution for me. That's great to know that um, a museum played such an important role in your professional development. Uh, and was that the Jurassic Coast, Mary Anning's coast? Uh, no, it was the it was the opposite side of that peninsula. It was along the Bristol Channel, mm. which also had Jurassic fossils, but not not such big and splendid ones. Uh, but there are some there are lovely ammonoids. Uh, this was around uh, around Watchet in Somerset. Now, um, you have made quite a few discoveries. Would you care to share any with us? In this game, a long time now. I I first published about fossils in the mid nineteen eighties. And I put in a lot of years of basic work. And I think in addition to, to things we can call discoveries, I think, I think basic contributions are important. And I, I published a lot of uh, systematic work on groups like corals and trilobites. And I think, so I'm pleased with those contributions to basic literature. But then in, in recent years, uh, i.e. the last 20 or so, I've had some, I think, genuine discoveries working with some really good colleagues. One of the, one of the ones we have received the, the most uh, uh, coverage for is that we found a giant trilobite along the shore of Hudson Bay that turned out to be the largest trilobite in the world. And uh, we published it as a new species that we named Isotelus rex and uh, and uh, received a, a Guinness record certificate surprisingly in the mail for that one a few months a few months after we announced the discovery. Uh, we've also discovered some new sites in uh, central and northern Manitoba with that have soft tissue preservation that have very strange remarkable fossils such as jellyfish preserved. This allowed us to find uh, the finding these sites then allowed us to find fossils such as uh, we found Lunataspis aurora, which at the time we published it was by far the oldest known horseshoe crab. And so it pushed the, the known fossil record of a, of a still living group back by about a hundred million years. Wow. And we found other, other rare fossils in those deposits, such as the oldest adult pycnogonid or sea spider. And again, the, uh, evidence of very early history of a living group. And I'll mention too, there are quite a few other weird things in these deposits that we are still working on the descriptions of. So there will, I find it perhaps most exciting that there are discoveries yet to be, yet to be announced. Wonderful, that's really exciting. Um, I have to say that even to this day, I still cite the, uh, the Isotelis rex uh, in my fossil tours and um, your fossilized jellyfish often come up uh, in those tours as well. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's good to know. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's great to feel that you're not, not just doing uh, uh, obscure specialized science. No, no. <laughs> um, and isn't it true that when you first found fossilized jellyfish, the first few that you found, you thought were just mud blotches, right? Uh, well, we thought that where we found them, the, I think the jellyfish had been preserved as, uh, as pyrite or fool's gold, which is uh, mineral you get replacing fossils in, uh, or replacing tissues in, in places where you have very anoxic uh, sediment, very low oxygen in the sediment, you get, you get uh, iron, this iron uh, sulfide forming. Hmm. But 
what happens to pyrite when it's exposed at the surface in the modern world is that it rusts and rots. So we had all, basically when we found the jellyfish, we were, we were throwing them away because we were thought, we thought they were just uh, rusty lumps of, of former pyrite. And it was only when, uh, when we happened to see one or two uh, really, uh, really unequivocal ones that we thought, oh, does that mean all, <laughs> all those other things we were, we were turfing were jellyfish? This must have been gorgeous. Well, they were, they were actually, I mean, the ones we were throwing out were all pretty awful. And in oh. fact, we only found good ones in that deposit when we really started uh, excavating, really, you know, really started lifting uh, the rock off to get down lower because the farther in you went, the less rotted they were. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, are you able to share anything that you're working on right now? Uh, well, I'm continuing to work on fossil jellyfish because they're they're very complicated. And I hate to think how many years I've worked on those jellyfish from central Manitoba. But actually, uh, my colleague James Hagedorn uh, at the Denver Museum and I have just finished uh, a synthesis paper on the environmental occurrence of jellyfish deposits. So what we've done is we've looked at all the known jellyfish occurrences through the fossil record which isn't very many because it's only about, I think, 13 deposits or groups of deposits. Wow. We've looked at those and tried to say what, you know, what was the environment that they lived in? What was the environment they were preserved in? What are the minerals that made up the preservation of the jellyfish? Just trying to understand this distribution because this tells us a lot about how environments have changed through time. Why do we get jellyfish early in the fossil record, but they're incredibly scarce later in the record? Mm. Well, it turns out that lots of other things have evolved that like to eat jellyfish. The microbes in the sediment themselves have probably evolved. Things that burrow in the sediment have, involved, have evolved. And when you get things burrowing in sediment, it opens it up to uh, oxygen. So mm -hmm. that you get a lot more decomposition. So, so we can actually look at something weird like jellyfish and let them tell us about how uh, marine environments have been changing. So that one, that one's nice, in, and it's especially nice that it's done. And we've just sent the uh, proofs back to the editors. We're I'm continuing to work on this big study of the fossil jellyfish from Central Manitoba, and these are. Uh, what you have to appreciate is that these are really strange fossils because they're, because although they're soft things, soft tissue fossils are often preserved just on bedding plane surfaces. You know, you see these, these images of the paleontologist splitting the rock and the rock splits apart and you see, uh, you know, a lovely fossil as in the, the Burgess Shale type examples. But these ones in central Manitoba aren't like that. They're three-dimensional going into a, uh, a rock related to limestone, which means if you see a bit of the jellyfish on the surface, it actually is going down into the rock by sometimes uh, up to a couple of centimeters thick thickness. The great thing about that is we can actually, uh, the bad thing is you can only see a bit of it on the surface. The good thing is that if you have a, a machine to make uh, microscope slides, which we fortunately do at the museum, we can do a whole series of slices through a single fossil and then uh, Try to understand the three-dimensional structure of them. So wow. that's what that's what I've been working on. But if, the other thing is, it it takes a very long time for us to to make those slices from multiple fossils, because we're dealing with a whole lot of jellyfish that 
were dead decomposing jellyfish. You have things that have rotted to a different extent. To, so to actually understand the biological structure, you can't just slice one or two of them because they might turn out to be uh, very badly preserved once you get inside them. So, so we're slicing a whole lot of them. And then we will be able to look at which ones show the best biological structures as opposed to which ones had, had rotted out the most uh, because the bacteria got to them. And when you say a whole lot, do you mean like dozens or hundreds? Uh, well, we collected, we found thousands. We, we collect, I think we've, we collected hundreds. I've got about 500 of them in the lab. Wow. And, uh, and we are slicing, oh dear, probably about 40 of them. Wow, that's impressive. But, so, but some of those, you have to appreciate, some of those don't pan out at all. You make one slice and basically there's nothing there. So, wow. yeah, but, it, but it is something that, that, the, that unfortunately takes years to do, if, to, do it, to do it this way. It's like doing one of those 3D puzzles. Yes. And the great thing about the technology we have available now is I can take those slides and scan them on a flatbed scanner. And we have software that's been uh, that's available free of charge because it was developed for the National Institutes of Health in the US for important things like understanding brains and kidneys in three dimensions. They'll take a, a kidney that has problematic features, for instance, slice it three dimensionally, you know, make, make multiple slices and then do a reconstruction. So they developed software for this, but we can, we can turn it to, a, to something esoteric such as uh, slices of fossil jellyfish and reconstruct them in three dimensions. That's one of the things that I love about paleontology is that you're constantly using um, tools that were developed for another purpose and uh, just repurposing them towards fossils in paleontology. Yeah, well, well, as, as you're likely aware by this time, with few exceptions, paleontology is not, uh, is not a field that's received huge, that receives uh, huge research grant funding. But we're able to piggyback onto other fields that do receive uh, the very large funding that allow these tools to be developed. So it's been, you know, sci science, all science moves forward together, I would say. And sciences benefit from, from any discovery in other sciences. One thing that I've heard from some of our earth and ocean and atmospheric science scientists is that um, really crazy things happen out in the field. Do you have any crazy field stories you'd care to share? Uh, I have a lot of field stories. You, you do not have enough time for my field stories, but uh, yeah, there've been, uh, I've had a lot of interesting field work in, in various parts of Europe and really all across North America. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's relatively straightforward things. We've had a lot of interesting weather in Northern Manitoba. We've had uh, summer snowstorms and and dealt with forest fires in the Grand Rapids uplands. We had uh, uh, there's one weather story that I find particularly uh, well remarkable. It's certainly not one I'd want to to do to replicate. Uh, we had done some we were doing some fly-in work three of us at a remote place on the north basin of Lake Winnipeg, and we'd camped right on the shore next to a, a fishing station. The fishing station was not occupied because it wasn't fishing season right at that point. Uh, one, one day, uh, well, the weather had been, had been brewing for a couple of days and we knew something was up and 
we had one day when there were actually uh, tornadoes that took down a lot of trees a little south of us on the south basin of Lake Winnipeg. And we had some very intense thunderstorms and squalls that blew through. We had, we had gotten back to the camp because we saw this weather was, was coming and the three of us hunkered in our cook tent and basically held down the tent because the winds were so strong. And then after the storm, I, I went out, it got very nice very quickly. But I, I looked and I looked at where our tents had been because we'd each had our own tent, the three of us, but there were only two tents there and the other one was a ground sheet. My colleague's sleeping tent I could see rolling away across the lake and unfortunately it had his sleeping bag, all of his clothing, his wallet. <laughs> oh. oh, and they, they were they were well gone. We were we and then we couldn't get the plane in for a couple more days, even though it was due uh, the next day. The plane simply couldn't come because the waves were too big on the lake. So so we ended up sort of camped out. Uh, he ended up sleeping in the fishing station because he had no sleeping bag or tent or anything. And uh, and then weeks we we but we we eventually got the plane, got back to Winnipeg, and then weeks later uh, his wife got a call from the RCMP because they'd found his wallet, and they they said, uh, should we be looking for a body? but she assured them that he had actually uh, returned safely. Uh, and, then, and then like other paleontologists, I've had the, the Northern experience with polar bears because we've done a lot of work around Churchill where we found the trilobite and Churchill is, is famous as the polar bear capital of the world, they call it. So we've had a lot of, of visits with polar bears, but I've never had any, I've never had any particularly dangerous ones, I would say, but but one I, in hindsight that was quite funny, which is there was one, we had not seen bears our first field season and the second season there, we were uh, out along the shore and we had just discovered uh, an unknown outcrop that had uh, these uh, sort of coral shoals that had uh, formed very near the ancient shoreline. And so it was something we found quite exciting and we were uh, the four or five of us were going along with their heads down looking, you know, looking very excited about these. And I happened to look up and I looked over towards a boulder field and uh, saw that uh, a couple of the boulders were moving because they were actually polar bears and uh, pointed this out to my colleagues uh, immediately. Most of us said, well, you know, we better, we better move it. And except for the one colleague who was so excited by the fossils that he said, well, how close to the bears can we work? And we we assured him that if we could see polar bears, that was too close to the polar bears. So we uh, we headed back to the to the truck, got up to the to the truck, which was sort of which was on a road that was a little above, and and then started watching the bears. And uh, one of the one of the bears, I think it was a very big bear. I assume it was a male, had gone down into the water and was sort of surreptitiously swinging swimming along parallel to the shore. Just, just headed for exactly the spot where we had been. <laughs> Obviously, it's nice to stay low in the water and check us out. We're pleased that we convinced our colleague that we could not hang around by the polar bears. So, but it's uh, it, it always keeps it interesting working up there. At, at the other extreme, I would say some of the field work in Europe is ridiculously civilized because there are sites in Britain where you can go to an interesting uh, outcrop uh, in the morning and then at lunchtime just walk straight from the outcrop to have a pub lunch. So that's the, the, the uh, 
the opposite, perhaps, of, of fieldwork danger, fieldwork comfort. That was actually my next question, um, how working in Europe was different than working in Canada. <laughs> um, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, again, uh, well, it, it, it varies. I, I think in Britain, people are prepared to put up with a lot more precipitation than Canadians tend to. In Canada, we tend to get most parts of Canada, I'm not going to speak about coastal BC, but most parts of Canada, we get enough fair days that if you get a rainy day, you'll perhaps stay in your stay in your tent or stay in the motel and write up field notes and uh, pack, pack samples and that sort of thing. Whereas in Britain, it's a rainy day, you just keep going because that rainy day could be followed by five more rainy days. So I think that that's one of the biggest differences. And also in in Europe, you tend to get a lot more people coming up and asking you what, what you're doing just because there are so many more people around. And, uh, and in places like Sweden, they are so, uh, so conscious of, of their role in protecting the landscape that you'd better be prepared to explain how careful you are being about their local landscape that they that everything that they take it very personally there which is not something you run into very much in north america that's a great problem to have <laughs> oh yeah yeah the the, uh, the personal responsibility in in scandinavia seems, seems is is very surprising now you do some really interesting research you're not just a, an ordinary paleontologist right you're you specialize in invertebrates right Yes, but that's that's most most of animal life is invertebrates by far. So so I, I would say there should be far more invertebrate paleontologists. <laughs> so yeah, you look at um, a specific type of, of fossils that we don't often think about. We always think of dinosaurs as being the only thing that paleontologists care about. Mm -hmm. uh, but you you really care about um, yeah a much broader category. <laughs> yeah, I think well we're just trying to trying to understand some of, some of the early history of, of life in the seas. I think that's, that's what I'm aiming at overall. We're really trying to get, a, in, in, to get a broader understanding of early life in the seas and where, where sea life came from. And, uh, and perhaps maybe this will help us to better understand where it's going also. That, that actually leads me to my next question. How does this impact uh, modern life? Um, well, sometimes it can be difficult to, to, to think of how it relates to modern life. Uh, I would say in, a mo in the most immediate way, working in a museum, I'm in a position where I can, where I can share discoveries with the public, both through uh, things like social media or through media coverage very immediately, but then we can also uh, develop a paleontological product right through to a uh, a temporary exhibit or in some cases a gallery exhibit and we've got some very large gallery exhibits that are based on our research so so looking at it from a the museum uh, perspective i would say that i am contributing directly to the to the museum's role in the community and of course to to getting visitors through the door by by doing this research i think it's. I found it very exciting to work now these days on groups that are still extant in the modern world because that getting that understanding of where things like jellyfish and horseshoe crabs came from, what they looked like in their early days, what they uh, 
where they were living, what environments they were living in. This helps us to much better understand what they have lived through. Our work on fossil jellyfish is important because where we find fossil jellyfish, we sometimes you just find one, but very often you will find dozens or hundreds or thousands. And in some instances, they're very large numbers across a single uh, bedding plane surface in the rock, which is good evidence that these things were living together. And of course, jellyfish blooms are a major topic in modern marine environmental studies because there are questions about whether people are causing jellyfish blooms, what the conditions are that cause jellyfish blooms, is it overfishing, is it because we're making the oceans warmer? So I, I find it quite intriguing that jellyfish blooms have actually been around for more than 500 million years. So they're not something that humans have have created, but they could certainly be something that we are contributing to. So I think developing a better understanding of this remarkable phenomenon is one of the more exciting things that we've worked on. And there's other work that we've done where we've looked at uh, changes across mass extinction events. We get a record in Manitoba, a good record of, of sedimentary rocks that run across the first of the big five extinctions in the history of life. This is the uh, late Ordovician extinction event, which is roughly 445 million years ago. So quite a long time ago, but we get very good evidence of this one in Manitoba. So we've been able to look at how some of the uh, fossils have changed across that. And also uh, I've been involved in pro projects that have looked at chemical changes, looked at the, at the isotopes that tell us about uh, what was going on in the ocean and with the sediments in this region. So again, you know, looking at these at these bigger changes that that may perhaps have some bearing on our understanding of, of current climate change. That's a really um, unexpected way of, that uh, paleontology impacts modern life, and um, that's really exciting. And if I can offer one more uh, way in which your research impacts modern life is um, our paleontologist at UBC has said that paleontology is a gateway science and you just make it so enthralling and interesting, um, luring young people into science. And then once they get in, into paleontology, they realize there's so many other ways that um, science interacts with paleontology, like biology or chemistry or uh, even physics in, in some cases. So um, I think yeah, it's great for that. <laughs> I, I, I think that's true. And certainly we we get a lot of, uh, we, we uh, talk to a lot of kids who are, who are interested in paleontology. When people want to go into paleontology, I, I, I tell them don't, don't do as I did because I, I just wanted to be a paleontologist and didn't really think of alternatives. But of course, as you, as you point out, it's a, it's a gateway science. People maybe start in paleontology maybe maybe keep doing some paleontological studies. Perhaps they also look at the fact that they uh, may want to earn a living and paleontology is not the, the best field for that. So, so, so perhaps, hopefully it encourages them to get into at least related disciplines, uh, environmental studies, sedimentological work. Uh, it's, it's good if paleontology maybe uh, that maybe someone ends up as a geophysicist, but but I would say once you're getting to very distant fields, it's a shame that perhaps that 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 that, that interest has been has been deflected. So perhaps some of these people could continue to 
make contributions that are related to paleontology. And, uh, and I have seen that in cases, in some cases with people who become very senior in other fields uh, mm -hmm. on, on things like geochemistry have gotten back into getting into collaborative projects, working with paleontologists to understand isotopes in bones. Mm -hmm. So uh, ideally, ideally, maybe some of these people eventually, uh, eventually come back to making a, a paleontological contribution as well. It's just like um, you were saying before, you're using software that's used to image kidneys and uh, human organs, and you're using them for your uh, jellyfish fossils. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that sort of cross pollination is great. Uh, I've I've worked with with scientists from a, a variety of backgrounds, and you invariably learn a lot. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's frightening uh, how how little some of us see. Uh, on an outcrop because we're looking at it with with such specialized eyes. So I will see the fossils, but for instance, I won't see all sorts of uh, sedimentary structures that that a, a really skilled sedimentologist will look at and will allow uh, that person to really interpret the environment in a different way. But they might not see the fossils, so it's best if we work together. Fabulous. Uh, now, there are parts of our jobs that we all love and that we don't love as much. Um, what are some of your, your favorite parts of your work? Um, uh, of course, field work is a favorite part. I think, I think many, many people get into these areas of science because they like being out there. And there is that famous saying that a bad day in the field is still better than a good day in the office. And with, with field work on the occasion that we have had significant funding for Northern field work, I've often, I've often uh, expressed surprise that I'm being paid to go flying around in helicopters on the Hudson Bay lowlands since, since many people pay large sums of money to do that as tourists. Um, but field work can of course also be tedious because you will be out there in the, in the conditions and as you get older, you discover all sorts of pains you didn't know you had. Uh, but then you may find a really exciting fossil, such as the day we found the trilobite, or the, the day I found the first of those horseshoe crabs, showed it to my colleague who was an arthropod expert, and I said, I think this looks like a horseshoe crab, and he said it can't be because they're, they're not around this early. Uh, so a day like that is, is very exciting, but at the museum, I think it's... Uh, Again, there is that discovery because a lot of things we study are small and working on fossils in the lab. Perhaps I'll get something under the microscope and suddenly see features that I wasn't aware of that will uh, you know, suddenly open, uh, open my mind to understanding a whole lot of structures that I, that I just didn't, uh, didn't, didn't grasp the meaning of. In, in another way, it's very exciting to develop exhibits at the museum. It's always exciting to open an exhibit, to finish it, to, uh, to have that collaborative process because we have great staff at the museum in a whole variety of areas. We have uh, some very smart people who build exhibits, who design exhibits, uh, and the, the people who market exhibits and the people who develop programs. And when you do a new exhibit, you get to collaborate with all those people and then see the public react. And hopefully you've done an exhibit that's good enough that the public will be excited about it as well. So. So I think, I, I, I think there are so many aspects and, and it's, 
I'm, I'm grateful that the museum work is so diverse. I think in, in some ways it'd be, it'd be wonderful to do one thing, but I, I don't think it would be anywhere near as rewarding as the, the variety of work that I've been able to do with the museum. That seems to be a central theme with your uh, talk today is that um, you enjoy collaboration and, uh, and all that diversity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think collaboration can be really good. It can be, it can be exhausting. You can have intervals where you just want to be by yourself and, and, doing, and doing one thing, but, uh, but it can be incredibly invigorating as well to work with a team. And uh, you know, going, uh, the gallery we've just done at the museum it doesn't really have paleontology in it, but it does have some geological science. So I've been working on exhibits about field stone and about rivers. And this is a gallery that's about the, the prairies region, about the, the grasslands uh, ecology and, and then the, 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 uh, the peoples and, and, the, and farming and all of the things that have happened in that region. So I've been working as part of this large curatorial team and we've traveled around together to look at this region, which has been very, very interesting because we'll often have a, a zoologist and a botanist and a historian and an a couple of archeologists and uh, a cultural anthropologist. And we'll all go together and we'll, we'll choose a variety of sites. You know, we'll have a sort of a site that the archeologist is particularly interested in. And then we'll go look at a building that the historian wants to look at. And uh, that's been a, a great learning process. But that sounds really fun and really yeah. rewarding. I'm going to be sorry to be done this project. We'll be back to our own fields a lot more. Uh, speaking of diversity, um, I know that you know diversity exists in the world, but sometimes the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences uh, does lack in certain aspects of diversity. Um, have you ever had to struggle unfairly in your studies or in your career? Um, I don't think I. I don't think unfairly. I think uh, I think choosing an obscure a field like paleontology that's not particularly market oriented means means that I, I think many people who've done paleontology have had to struggle to find to find uh, work. I think I think many of us go through through different stages. Those of us who grow up in small places, uh, I found I could I was very surprised when I got to bigger centers and got to con to international conferences, when I realized the level that other people were functioning at, that uh, just how much background some people had because they had gone to all, effectively they'd gone to all the all the right schools and they trained with all the all, all the best people, shall we say? They trained with leading people that that I I realized I had an awful lot of work to do to. Uh, to try to catch up, let alone keep up. So I think I think you know that's a that's a struggle. Uh, another thing, perhaps, and again, this is not an, an unfair an unfair struggle, but I think uh, we are all the product of of where and when we were born. And I happen to be born at the very end of the baby boom, so I always feel offended when people talk about baby boomers of ha having all the advantages because. The way it came along for me was I was basically two years too late arriving at every stage of life so that I, I saw opportunities ahead of me. And then by the time I arrived at them, they had disappeared that uh, 
you know, there was a recession, so there were no industry jobs. There were, uh, by the time I, I finished really training in the 90s, we, we had these huge cutbacks of the federal government and, uh, and all the universities and all those things were tightening up. So, uh, so there were intervals where I, I, I started to think that maybe I was going to have to find, find something more, uh, more marketable to do. But then a part-time job opened up at the museum. This is the curatorial job. And I got in there two days a week at, uh, you know, for 10 months. And that was in 1993. So, wow. so I, I, I think what comes out of that is that if, if you do feel that you have a sort of a mission, it is worth your while to, to struggle towards that, even if, even if you don't, uh, even if there are intervals where you really think that's not going to happen and you're going to have to do something else. At least uh, you want to be realistic, but you also want to give yourself that chance. That's certainly relatable for um, some of the generations today, too, uh, who uh, gone through the double whammy of the 2008 recession and then uh, this COVID recession. Um, yeah, that it's inspiring to know that, you know, we will come out of this on the other end. Um, you know, it's happened to other generations and we can pull through. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I really, I really think there are going to be a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of, uh, remarkably talented younger people that I meet in paleontology. It's often, uh, it's often shocking how smart they are. And, uh, and I'm, I think in other sciences as well. So I think I think people do need to, to to recognize that it is going to improve. We're going to be through this thing. There are going to be a lot of opportunities because there are quite maybe not very many so many my age because as I say there weren't <laughs> there weren't really jobs when I came out. But there are there are quite a few who are who are perhaps somewhat younger in, in positions and those positions are going to be opening up in the next while. Now I mentioned uh, COVID, uh, this is impacting our world quite a bit right now. How has it impacted you? Are you able to work from home? I am working from home right now. I'm largely able to work from home. My job is could, could really be three full-time jobs. So as a result, if I'm forced to do one aspect of the job, I can easily do that full time. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, we've been do doing this gallery project, which has been a very large undertaking. And through the spring and the summer, we've been working on a lot of audiovisual exhibits. Uh, so working with AV developers, having a lot of back and forth on video components, touchscreen components, uh, writing final labels to go on touch screens and then we've also been uh, finalizing uh, specimens and artifacts for cases and reviewing uh, a lot of layouts of labels and panels so we've had a mo many days have been filled up with exhibit work uh, of course writing papers can also be done from home and nowadays any kind of graphics work or photo editing so really i haven't To do an awful lot of my work. Uh, what has suffered is the hands-on work and the sorting out of museum collections, of course, and hopefully that will be rebalanced when when the world does return to normal. But in the in the meantime, I could, and I've been going in a couple of days a week uh, lately. We'll see how what happens now that things are tightening up again with COVID in Winnipeg. But uh, 
I, I could work at home for for months and I, I will not be running out of things. I've got many thousands of photographs of, of specimens that I need to study and uh, think images to be laid out for photo plates for papers and text to be written. So it's uh, it, it's not a problem to be sitting up here in the attic. It sounds like you've still got that optimism that many of us have in the early pandemic that we would use this time to sort out our lives. And uh, <laughs> I know for myself, I haven't sorted my apartment as much as I thought I would, um, but you're getting your photographs in order, which is very, very useful, I know. Well, yeah, we can, we can hope so. And uh, uh, you know, ob obviously there have been a lot of uh, issues with, with jobs and, and positions of various institutions. And our, our museum has certainly had quite a bit of a belt tightening. So we will have to see what the situation is if the, this goes on for longer. I can, but I can, I, I can certainly continue to, to do this work. And, uh, and we're very lucky that many of us have continued to be full-time at the museum when, for instance, uh, some museums in the States I know basically shut the doors and laid off everybody. So we're, we're, in, a, we're in a far better situation. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Graham, those are all the questions I have for today. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Oh, it's, uh, it's hard to think, Daniel. That's a, uh, that's a really good interview. You've got some, some great questions. I think, I think I'd return to that uh, feeling that people should be encouraged to, to go forward in if they have a particular desire to, in a particular in a discipline, and even if it isn't, even if it doesn't seem immediately marketable or job driven, to to at least spend, put in put in the time and and see where you can go with that. But always having a always having a plan B, having some other some other skill or getting getting other training at the same time that would allow you to uh, to readily earn a living. And anyone who's thinking of a field like paleontology, I, I would say develop some of those skills that you may not be aware are related to the field. And in particular, I would say learn to write and learn to do uh, photographic and artwork, mm. which are not things you think, uh, neither of which may be something you think of for science, but I would say those are, are critical skills for a lot of paleontology and of course, critical skills also for uh, all of the publicity aspect that is so important in the modern world. And, and there are many people developing uh, in related areas, you know, such as museum outreach people or paleontological artists or people who who write popular material so make sure you develop those skills if you're if you're if you're looking at any field like paleontology that's great advice because as you've shown if there's anything with uh, paleontology it's that you'll get some really crazy uh crossovers of skills and um and people <laughs> well thanks for your time and your stories graham i wish you all the best okay well thanks daniel i hope that's useful to you i hope i didn't didn't go didn't go on too long on some of those things. No, no, I loved it. Okay, good. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.